My name is Matt Younger, one of the pastors uh, at the Village Church, and I have been friends with Brandon for uh, far too long now, uh, something I think we're going on about nine years. And so uh, he is one of my favorite people in the world, also uh, unequivocally, without exception, one of the weirdest dudes I've ever met in my life. And like, I'm not saying that because that like, like that's this little joke in my sermon, like one of the weirdest people I've ever met in my life. I mean, I could for the next 30 minutes and you would probably enjoy it, just tell you story after story. A couple, um, just because we're about to make that shift in both Dallas and Houston where it goes from uh, more hot to less hot. I remember, this is a true story, it's probably mid-October and it was like the first 60 degree day in Dallas. And so, you know, of course, we're all excited and kind of maybe putting on a jacket, you know, something a little warmer than a t-shirt. And I'm not kidding you, Brandon walked into the office with a scarf on. <laughs> and we were like, are, are you serious? But uh, I wanna just tell you Aggies something. Uh, I'm an Aggie, class of 2005. And so uh, one of the things that I have had to admonish Brandon, and this is a real thing, by the way, because he has his opinions about everything, specifically Aggies. Uh, and so when the Lord called him to Sojourn Heights, and I've just listened to some of his sermons with some of the things that he says about us, and I'm like, brother, you have to be more shrewd than that. Like you're, you're, God's called you to an oil town. I promise you the, the, the membership here is 75% Aggie. I, I, don't even, I don't even have to know that. I just, like if you're an Aggie, whoop. Okay, that's all I needed to, so I'm just like, you, you just need to be more tactful with your opinions about a and I'm, I'm just, it is what it is. And so, uh, so anyway, so uh, if he's ever out of a job, I'll know the reason why that is. And so, uh, more importantly, I have the privilege of preaching God's word. And so I had a great conversation with Brandon. I was like, hey, I've preached a lot at the village this summer. Could I just... Uh, could I just maybe rehash something that I've given there? And he goes, no, you're going to preach Galatians 4, uh, chapters 1 through 11. And so I have been excited to study this text uh, and get into it a little bit. So that's, uh, that's him for. So I remember uh, in seminary, I actually, we translated the book of Galatians from Greek to English, the, the entire book, which was uh, a lot of fun. And I remember my professor saying, uh, that the singular question of the book of Galatians is this. It's the question, what time is it? He's like, if you want to understand Galatians, look to that question. What time is it? What time is it? And so I think about in this passage particularly, as we drill down in that, uh, to that question, Paul will give us a little bit of clarity as to what time it actually is. So in the first two verses, we see him talking about an heir compared to a child uh, who is no different from a slave. And he says in verse two, but the heir, even though he's the owner of everything, is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Uh, while I was in seminary, I had uh, the uh, privilege of working for the Dallas Cowboys. I am a lifetime Dallas, this isn't a sports analogy, by the way, uh, but I did work for the Cowboys. I'm a huge Cowboys fan. How could you not be being 10 years old and watching them win Super Bowls like I was? Uh, so I got to work there for five years. And I remember uh, getting, and I had, uh, you know, I wasn't anybody. I worked on the sideline for game days, so I had a great view. But nobody knew who I was. But I remember watching the Jones family. If you don't, who, if you don't know who they are, they're the, the owners, the very involved ownership of 
the Cowboys, and uh, I remember, you know, you'd see Jerry Jones, you'd see uh, Stephen, his son, and his other children, but Stephen specifically, who's kind of the heir apparent, and then Stephen has a bunch of kids of his own, but he has one son uh, with a bunch of sisters, and I remember just watching, and this kid's in high school now, he'll actually be a senior, he won the state championship for Highland Park last year, but I remember kind of watching him as a kid and just going, like, you have no idea what is before you, you know? So, like, right now, this is cool, and you get to be on the sidelines, and you get to see Tony Romo, and you're as much a fan as anybody else, and yeah, you get their autograph, but you have no, and this is just all normal, right? You don't know anything different than just coming and watching and being around the Cowboys, but your opinions mean very little right now. But if you play your cards right, in about 20 years, you're going to be a shot caller for the Cowboys. Like, you're likely going to be not only what your grandpa is, what your dad will be. That's probably um, kind of what's in uh, your future. And, and yet, at the same time, it was just such this kind of interesting juxtaposition of you're not there yet. Like, you're being trained for it, but you're nowhere close to that And if that analogy fails, uh, then maybe we could just go to Mufasa and uh, Simba's relationship where Disney wrote a song about it where where Mufasa, I'm sorry, where Simba said that he's going to be a king. And Zazu, his little tutor, his little guardian, his little manager said, no, you're not going to be yet. And so this is what Paul's doing in this passage here. He's talking about how we, under the law specifically, we're being trained for something, and not we as much as uh, the Jewish people. We're being trained by something. We're being led to understand something. We're being tutored in something. We, we're we're um, beginning to enjoy something that was not quite fully ours yet. Uh, but of course, um, in Paul's gospel, I'm sorry, in Paul's epistle here, going back to that question, what time is it? This is the whole upshot of what Paul's trying to say, that now is the time for you guys to actually enjoy this. This is, this is the time to do it. And it's really interesting when you kind of drill down to this idea of like Roman guardianship. It's this, the, the metaphor that Paul's going for is that there was a time when the law was something for you to enjoy, but not quite fully revealed, not quite fully evolved. And then he goes on in verse 3, and he says this, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the uh, elementary principles of this world. Now, I'm leaning a lot on kind of past sermons, which I know uh, unpack chapter 3, and so I'm just leaning on what I know was kind of faithful exposition there, uh, but I want to just jump in where Paul's saying we here, I believe he's, he's referring to his Jewish identity here, and this is important because the uh, strongest oppositional force in the book of Galatians uh, is the, the Judaizers who are coming into this like rural, almost redneck, if I can call it that, context of Galatia and trying to make these uh, pagan people like their old kind of ancestral customs and habits and form, like he, they were trying to make them Jews. And so that's why Paul is so decidedly trying to attack the oppositional force. That's why he says in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, you foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? Like it was before your very eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed 
is crucified, and yet when he uses this term element, elementary principles, very broad term that he's going to use again uh, in verse 9, I'm sorry, ver yeah, verse 9, but what I believe he's talking about here is this idea of making Jewish customs and cultures salvific in nature. And so these Judaizers have come in, and what they're basically saying is to these non-Jewish people, if you want to experience the fullness of God, then you need to partake in circumcision, you need to uphold the Sabbath laws, you need to fulfill the ceremonial laws. And Paul's just going, absolutely not. He's attacking them harshly, emphatically, but he's not attacking the law. He's not attacking the law. Drew and I had a great uh, conversation about this. The law in this conversation still stands. He's not attacking the law. He's attacking a misappropriation. He's attacking an abuse of the law because the law, as it stands, is a gift from God to do a few things. The law is there to show us that God has absolute, uncompromising, and non-negotiable standards. And so when we see the law, we say, he really is holy. He's righteous. He's other than. And then the law, I think, does another thing. The law helps us restrain evil in the world. And so when you just kind of read history, and I'm not talking about any law, I'm talking about this Judeo-Christian ethic. I'm talking about the Ten Commandments. When you see places in the world that have constitutionally been based on these principles, what you see are most certainly imperfect societies. But you see societies over centuries and centuries where law and jurisprudence, I think, has taken those civilizations to places, uh, to a kind of human flourishing that you haven't seen in places that haven't built their laws on this kind of ethic. And so... These laws, I think, in history have done a good job of restraining evil, at least some kinds of it. But I think more importantly, what we see in the law is that there was actually only one person in human history that would come and fulfill them, fulfill the laws perfectly. Um, that there was one person who, in every sense of the term, would epitomize, would... Um, reveal to us what God hoped out of his chosen son Israel. And so we see the perfection of the life of Christ, but we're also realizing how short we fall uh, of this law. And so Paul is attacking harshly the misappropriation of the law, but he's not attacking the law. Jewish religion in its purest form was not law-based. It was not Religion. It was not, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. One uh, commentator said this, the Ten Commandments was not understood as ten prescriptions for attaining God's favor, but as a declaration of God's personal relationship with his people and his salvific action on their behalf. With what follows being this, a list of statements as to how God's people were to live in response to such a relationship and an act, the way that I tried to describe it to my seven-year-old daughter, um, and I think this is faithful, maybe you can push back after the sermon if you disagree, but I try to tell her this all the time. I say, Caroline, obedience brings joy, and disobedience brings disaster. I tell her that all the time. Obedience brings joy, and disobedience brings disaster. Now, what I'm not telling her is that 
perfect obedience, like obedience means that we are going to love you more. I think we know this. Surely it's been said at this, pulp, this pulpit here that grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Surely you've heard that. That's not original with me. But that obedience to what God says, specifically his law, the law of love fulfilled in Christ, but I would go so far as to say the obedience of faith that Paul talks about in his letter to the Romans, that obedience to faith, to the law of love, and disobedience to God's law brings disaster. And so Paul does not attack the law. He attacks the, misappro- the misappropriation of it. And I believe we can teach our children uh, this in light of the gospel. And then in four, in 4 through 7, he really gets into it, and he says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's huge. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Um, The law is so clearly, this is his point, the law is so clearly pointing to Christ, so clearly looking forward to this hero, this savior, this man born under the law who would finally exemplify, finally, how the law described Israel as his chosen son and would also reveal, I think, and bring to light that uh, those of us who did not fulfill the righteous requirement of the law needed redemption, needed healing, needed reconciliation. And so, the, so what Paul's saying is that what this does, when we see Christ under the law, we see what finally reveals those of us who so clearly live condemned because of our failure to live up to the law's righteous standards. And so what time is it? Like, what time is it? That's the question I think Paul's asking. And I think it's time for us to either see or be reminded that Christ really has regarded our helpless estate and has shed his own blood for our soul. It's time to drill down on the most beautiful and compelling story in human history that you are so loved. You are so loved. You are so loved. You are so cherished. You are so brought near. You have been called son. You have been called daughter. And there's just a confidence that comes with that. And so I will likely, after I preach the 11, my family will be here. My wife's from Sugarland, by the way. And so we always have a free place to stay when I come and badger Brandon. Uh, but uh, so we'll probably go to lunch after this. I don't know where we'll go. I may or may not order a Dr. Pepper. Chances are about 75% that I will. And my daughter um, will undoubtedly, unquestionably, without any kind of suggestion, come and take a drink of my Dr. Pepper. She'll do it. Why? She's my daughter, she's my heir. There's a confidence that comes with being in our family. And she is not ashamed under any circumstances, trust me, to relish whatever good name we have given her. There's just not. She just enjoys it. What little inheritance she will get from us. At the end of my life, when I'm dying, I will say, sweetheart, do you remember those Dr. Peppers? Because there's nothing left. (laughs) 
but um, she enjoys it. She's an heir. It's her inheritance. And it's not this formal, stoic, father, can I, it's just, she just takes it. And you know what? I don't care. It's hers. It's hers to enjoy. Now, she can't have too much of it. <laughs> but it's hers to have. And then he, uh, the back end of this section, he kind of gets into his admonition. And he says this, formally, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that were by nature, um, slaved to those that by nature are not gods. Verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, and then he kind of changes it, rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I have labored in you in vain. And I think what Paul's getting at here as we kind of wrap the passage up is that there's two temptations here. The first temptation, as we discussed earlier, and this is kind of the crux of what's happening in the book, is the temptation of these non-Jewish folks uh, to become uh, more Jewish in their life than they should be. Like that, uh, and, and we, yeah, we've already talked about that, but there's something else going on as well. And I think it's very clear that Paul in the first part is talking about his context, his life, but in the second part, he's actually talking about the context of the Galatians and their life and what specifically they were freed from. They were not freed initially when they became Christians from a, uh, uh, an overly religious kind of culture, at least a uh, Judeo-religious culture, they were actually freed from a Roman uh, kind of culture, a Greco-Roman uh, understanding of gods and goddesses and everything else. They were freed from that. And so I think Paul's kind of coming at this two ways, and he's saying there's two temptations. Paul's not just talking about enslavement to Jewish customs. He's talking about cultural enslavement as well. In this case, the Roman gods that were prevalent in the day of the Galatians. And his argument is this. You are known by God. You know the truth. You know where you came from. You remember what he brought you out of. You remember that. I was here for it. How can you enslave yourself yet again to the idols in your culture from which you were freed up? How does this affect us? Well, it's interesting because I feel like in my life, I have a little bit of both. I feel like I can identify with both the Judaizers and what they were trying to do. And I think I can also identify with what Paul's talking about with the kind of Roman influence as well. You see, um, I wasn't born Southern Baptist. I was born Catholic. Uh, but uh, I became a Christian in the eighth grade of the Southern Baptist Church. And so I got enough of that kind of old school, old time, religious kind of whatever uh, to haunt me a little bit. Right, And so I know what it's like to not be freed uh, from some of these kind of religious patterns that us in the South have set up for ourselves. I know what it's like to be uh, ensnared to a form of, of religion that, said God, that says God is only is happy uh, with me as the length of my last quiet time or the significance of my last prayer or the measure of my last good deed or how much tithe I've given the church or how faithful. Like, I know what it's like to be enslaved to that. I know what it's like to, you know, at 10.30 in the morning to wake up and to be like, 
I didn't have a good quiet time this morning. Surely my day is shot and surely God is disappointed in me. I know that feeling all too well. Kind of that old time religion. I think that's what the Judaizers are trying to do in a way to the Galatians. And Paul's saying we're free from that. But that's not only what he's saying. He's not only attacking that. He's also saying you cannot be ensnared to the elementary principles of your world. Which I think translates very effectively to our context as well. Um, It's easy for us maybe sometimes to forget or maybe easy for us to miss that um, the Houstonian gods, the American gods, the cultural gods that we worship, um, it's not going to be as explicit as going to the temple of Plutus. Like, I, I, I don't think any of you guys this week called your friend and said, hey, I'm going to be a little late for dinner. I have to go to the temple of Plutus and sacrifice a chicken. Just don't think any, I don't think that happened. If it did, talk to Dodds, because there's some stuff going on in your life that you probably need to work through. Um, because Plutus is who, the Greco-Roman god, Plutus is who you would go to, the god of wealth, if you wanted material blessing in your life. You would go in these days and sacrifice to Plutus. If you want to know who the Greco-Roman gods are, just remember the names of our planets. Plutus uh, turned into Pluto, and Pluto, I think, got kicked out. Was it Pluto? Is that right? Yeah, got kicked out, so poor Pluto. Uh, But I don't think that any of you guys are going to that temple and making a sacrifice this week. But I think what those temples look like for us are the temples of overspending and pretending. I think it's the temple of being so consumed by what your boss thinks about you, checking your email all throughout the day, all throughout the night, being so worried about your next promotion, being so worried about what that bonus is gonna look like in December, being so consumed by the title that you have at work. I think those are our modern day sacrifices to Plutus, just being overly concerned, overly consumed. And let me say this as a caveat, especially to the young Aggies in here. You're going to have to work hard in your 20s. So I never want to be that guy that just comes in and drops a bomb and says, uh, like, hard work is bad. No, hard work is good. And some of you guys, especially earlier in your careers, you're going to have to pay your dues. It just is what, if 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 you want to work especially in the corporate world, you're gonna have to pay your dues. Uh, If you work in like taxes, accounting, April's probably not a good month to take a vacation. You know, you're not in sin necessarily if you have to come home late a few weeks in a row to get, that's okay. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this overconsumption with work and identity and a trajectory for your life and how much you have in your 401k and what you think you need, and basing your worth and your approval on how many promotions, that's the sacrifice to Plutus that I'm talking about. And I think that's probably a temptation for some of us in the room, that we can be ensnared to the elementary principles of our world. To be really careful with this, because I'm uh, as big an Aggie football fan as you'll find, but, you know, companies in the fall, they brace themselves for billions and billions and billions of dollars of inefficiency uh, with the NFL, right? So 
um, because we can just give ourselves entirely to sports, especially in the fall, especially in Texas, and get in this unhealthy place where our mood is affected by whether or not Kevin Sumlin goes with Kellen Mond or with Nick Starkle. And if you don't know who I'm talking about, you're all the more better. Trust me, seriously. You should lead a parish. Um, <laughs> but, um, and so I'm like, enjoy football to the glory of God. I think it's one of his greatest gifts to us. I'll stand by that statement. But like, if you wake up on Monday morning and you're just embittered or frustrated or consumed with the Texans losing the night before or your fantasy football team losing, hey, first of all, the Texans have always lost. So you don't have anything to worry about. I'm sorry. Sorry, I'm just kidding. Boo, get him out of here. Sorry. I'm a Cowboy fan. It's been a bad 20 years. Forgive me. Everything was going great until then. Get me out of here. Um, but you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just there's this, this thin line between enjoyment and then overconsumption. And I think that that's what Paul's talking about, these elementary principles of the world that he calls weak and worthless, that can just consume us, things that can suck the life out of us and rob us of the full experience of our sonship and our daughterhood. And I wouldn't want any of us to be beholden to those things. Because Paul's question here really is, I believe, what time is it? It's time for us to see that we have been freed up from those things. And it's time for us to see that we really do have an inheritance with him as heirs, that we are on a crash course for greatness and that he has all kinds of wonderful things that he wants to do to and through us together. And that to be hindered or inhibited or ensnared to these kinds of principles, whether they're unhelpful, unhealthy religious principles or unhelpful, unhealthy worldly principles are just not what the Lord would have for us. And so I'm grateful for Paul's admonition and I hope uh, that it blesses you as you think about that this week. So let me pray for us and then uh, we'll keep going. So Lord, thank you for the joy that it is to be here. Um, thank you for the, the blessing of being just a small part of this church, seeing all that you're doing in Houston, all you're doing in the Heights. Uh, and I thank you for the grace of knowing that we really have been freed up uh, from our former lives. We've been freed up from um, just the, the idols that have enslaved us. And so, Lord, where we may find ourselves yet again enslaved to any of those things, pray that you would help us to repent, to turn, and to be reminded uh, yet again of how great your love is for us. I pray this in Christ's name, amen.